How many of you have ever been to Glen Rose um, and, and watched the musical production, um, The Promise, which is about the life and death and resurrection of Jesus Christ? How many of you have ever been there and saw that? Um, I've been there several times. In fact, when we were um, on staff at First Baptist Church of Wiley, every year at Easter, almost every year at Easter, we would do that production before the church and the community. And I always loved doing the promise. It was always kind of fun to to kind of get out of character or as some would say for me, get into character because some reason I was always a Pharisee. And I don't get why I was always given one of the roles of a Pharisee. Sometimes I'd play Nicodemus. Other times it would just be one of the, the, the Pharisees. And I remember we would always have these long black robes. We'd have these white hats that we would wear, and they would have like these little fake pieces of jewelry all in them. And we would just be out there on the stage. We'd have our chest out, and man, we were always kind of looking for a fight. And that's what Pharisees do. They're always looking for a fight. And last week we saw that um, in, in, in our, our scripture reading that the Pharisees and Jesus have an encounter. And this morning we're going to see that same thing. We're going to see another showdown that is going to occur between Jesus and the Pharisees. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 12. We're going to be looking at verses 15 through 32. 15 through 32. I always try to get Alan, who was the, the worship pastor at First Wiley, to give me a, a different role other than a Pharisee, but he never would. And so I, I still, you know, I still struggle with that. And I'm not bitter, though. Um, we read this in God's Word. Jesus, aware of this, withdrew from there, and many followed him. And he healed them all and ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. Behold, my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. He will not quarrel or cry aloud, nor will anyone hear his voice in the streets. A bruised reed he will not break and a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. Then a demon oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him and he healed him so that a man spoke and saw. And now all the people were amazed and said, can, can this be the son of David? But when the Pharisees heard, they said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demons, that this man cast out demons. Knowing their thoughts, he said to them, Every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste, and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first binds a strong man? Then, indeed, he may plunder his house. Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. Therefore, I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. 
And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. Understand this this morning. You are either for Jesus or you are against Jesus. You are either for or against his ways, uh, for or against his teaching, for or against his authority, for or against his name. This morning, my question for all of us in this room, are we for Jesus or are we against him? Notice our first point this morning is this, Jesus, servant and king. Jesus was the ultimate servant, wasn't he? As we will see in a minute, he did not come to be served, but to serve. In Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11, we have this great, beautiful picture of Jesus being the ultimate servant. We read, Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed upon him the name that is above every name, so that the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. One day... Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. That is going to happen on this side of eternity or it will happen on the other side of eternity. For those that profess Christ as Lord on this side of eternity, your reward is heaven. For those that choose to denounce Christ on this side of eternity, but one day will profess Christ as being Lord, it will be too late. For those who wait until after they die. Everyone will proclaim that Jesus is Lord. For those that do it on this side of eternity, your reward is heaven. For those that do it on the other side of eternity, hell awaits that person or those people. Notice our first subpoint this morning. Jesus knows the heart a man. Jesus, aware of this, in verse 15 we read, withdrew from there, and many followed him, and he healed them all, and out ordered them not to make him known. This was to fulfill what was spoken by the prophet Isaiah. You know, our final point last week was this. The Pharisees conspire to destroy Jesus. The Pharisees realize that they are not going to defeat Jesus intellectually. They're not going to defeat him supernaturally, and they're not going to defeat him by using trickery. So because of that, what they conspire to do is they conspire to kill Jesus. Notice in this passage of scripture, we see that Jesus withdrew from the crowd. He didn't withdrew as, as we see often where he went alone. He withdrew from this crowd and other people followed him. Many people followed him and he healed them all is what this passage of scripture tells us. You know, a lot of times as we read through God's word, we see person after person after person reject Christ. But I want you to know, many people did reject Christ whenever he walked the face of this earth. But many, many, many people also chose to follow after Jesus as well. Many people on this side of eternity that live today 
will choose to reject Jesus Christ, but many, many, many people also every single day choose to follow after Jesus Christ because you and I are obedient to the Great Commission and we go and we take the good news of salvation to them and provide them an opportunity so that they can be reconciled to God the Father. In 1 Corinthians chapter 15, Paul wrote to the church of Corinth. In verses 3 through 8, we read this. Paul says, For I delivered to you as a first importance what I also received, that Christ died for our sins in accordance with the Scripture, that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the Scripture, and that he appeared to Cephas, then to the twelve, then he appears to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. You know, many people deny Christ, but many, many people followed Christ as well. We see in the last part of verse 15, in the first part of verse 16, we read this. That Jesus healed them all, and he ordered them not to make him known. Why oftentimes, Jesus, after he would heal somebody, why did Jesus tell them, go and tell no one. That's always been perplexing. As I was growing and even as I walked through seminary and, and, and um, walked through different Bible classes, those are one of, some of those questions that I asked. Why would Jesus say over and over to tell no one? Well, there could be several reasons for that. One of the reasons could very well be that Jesus' work was not yet complete at that time that he told people to tell no one and to prevent his untimely death or premature death. He would instruct people not to tell anyone. Also, Jesus wanted people to focus on his message, not just on his healing. Jesus's primary goal was not to restore broken bodies, but to save souls from the fire of hell. If people just saw Jesus as some sideshow act, they would have missed the true reason that he came. Jesus came to reconcile this world to God the Father this broken, perverse world to God the Father. Another reason that we see, which leads us to our next sub-point, is this. Jesus is the fulfillment of Old Testament prophecy. In verse 18, the very first word that we read here is this word, behold. This word, behold, literally means to look carefully. Matthew, as he penned his gospel, he had the Jew in mind as he wrote this passage of scripture. And because he wrote it with the Jew in mind, oftentimes he would take Old Testament um, prophecy and he would link it with New Testament fulfillment. Jesus did not come in splendor and royalty like the Pharisees and the Jews expected. He came as a suffering servant. There is coming a day, and I pray that it is soon, that he is going to come as the messianic king to defeat Satan and bind him up once and for all. His first coming was as the suffering servant, but his next coming will be in splendor and in power. And I long for that day, as I know many of you long for that day as well, when Jesus comes as the victorious king. Notice what this passage tells us about Jesus. Hundreds of years before Jesus came, God the Father gave these words to Isaiah. Behold my servant whom I have chosen, my beloved with whom 
my soul is well pleased. I will put my spirit upon him, and he will proclaim justice to the Gentiles. I love that passage of scripture because as I as I was preparing for this message and read that passage of scripture, it just reminded me of Jesus's baptism, where God the Father, after Jesus comes out of the the water, God the Father proclaims His great pleasure for His Son Jesus Christ, and we see this the dove descending as a spirit from heaven upon the Lord Jesus Christ. In verse 19, we are told that Jesus will not come quarreling. Remember, the Jews are anticipating the Messiah to come and defeat Rome. They're expecting him to come and kick Rome to the curb and reestablish the throne of David. Jesus, though, as the Father predicted in Isaiah Penn, came not as a, 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 a person wielding a shield. He came as a suffering servant. He did not come to physically rage war as we read in Matthew 20, 28. Jesus said, even as a son of man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Jesus came and modeled for us what a servant, a humble servant looks like. And we are to learn from Jesus. We are to model the behavior that Jesus had. We are to serve other people. We are to love on other people. We are to invest in other people. Jesus was a a gentle servant when he walked the face of this earth. In fact, Isaiah says this about Jesus in verses 20 and 21. A bruised reed he will not break. And a smoldering wick he will not quench until he brings justice to victory. And in his name, the Gentiles will hope. A bruised reed he will not break. Isaiah is talking about a marsh reed here. They were common, they were everywhere, and they were also fragile. People would make flutes out of them. They would make measuring rods out of them. They would even make pins out of them. They had many, many uses. When a reed was broken, it was discarded. It was no longer good for anything. And the same is true of a wick. Once that wick gets down to the very end, all of us have candles around our house, and all of us um, know that whenever that wick gets too low, It just produces a lot of black smoke. And unless you do some work on that candle, you take that candle and you throw it away because it's good for nothing. Well, I want you to know what we're reading in this passage of Scripture right here is that Jesus does not discard that which the world deems as being useless. There's not a single person in this room or outside the doors of this church that Jesus declares as being useless. Every one of us in this room have great value and great worth to God the Father. As long as you have air left in your lungs, you are valued by God the Father. You still have great worth to him. Your work is not done yet on earth. I don't care if you're 10 years old or you're 99 years old. As long as you have air in your lungs... You and I have value to God because we can be the hands and feet of Christ amongst those that we come in contact with. Notice our second point this morning. It is this, Jesus, Deliverer and Messiah. 
Once again, there is going to be a showdown between Jesus and the Pharisees. The Pharisees accuse Jesus of healing people by the authority of Satan. And Jesus puts them in their spot right away. Notice Jesus' authority over demons. In verses 22 and 23, we read this. Then a demon-oppressed man who was blind and mute was brought to him, and he healed him, so that the man spoke and saw. And all the people were amazed and said, Can this be the son of David? This man does not just have one thing wrong with him. He has a multitude of things wrong with him. He's possessed by a demon. He is blind, and he is mute. And in an instant, this man is healed. And for all of those people that have been following Jesus for who knows how long, many of them have been riding the fence trying to determine, is is Jesus really the Messiah? Is he really God who has become man? Is he really the son of David? And on this day, they are left amazed. Many of them are left amazed. And on this day, they do proclaim or ask the question, can this be the son of David? Meaning, Is this the Messiah? Every single one of us have to come to a point in our lives where we too must decide whether Jesus indeed is the Messiah. God became man, the King of kings and the Lord of lords, and the only one that can forgive us of our sins and provide for us a way to God the Father. Every one of us must make that decision, just like this crowd did whenever they asked that question, is this the son of David? Is this the Messiah? Is Jesus indeed the King of kings and the Lord of lords? That is a question. That all of us at some point in our life must wrestle with whether or not Jesus indeed is who he said he was. We also see here in our next sub point, Jesus' authority over Satan. In fact, on this day, they accused Jesus, the Pharisees, of using the power of Beelzebul to cast out demons. In verse 24 we read, but when the Pharisees heard it, They said, it is only by Beelzebul, the prince of demon, that this man cast out demons. In Jewish literature, Beelzebul was also um, frequently used not only to speak of demons, but also to speak of Satan himself. So these Pharisees, who back in Matthew 9 have already accused Jesus once of of being Satan, once again will do that very thing. And so Jesus goes toe-to-toe with them here. He goes to war against the Pharisees. He points out that the Pharisees' accusations against him, number one, that they are not logical. He asks, why would Satan cast out Satan. What benefit would that be? In verses 25 and 26, we read, knowing their thoughts, he said to them, every kingdom divided against itself is laid waste and no city or house divided against itself will stand. And if Satan cast out Satan, he is divided against himself. How then will his kingdom stand? No kingdom divided against itself will stand. Folks, Satan does not wage war against Satan. If he did, then he would destroy his own mission. And you may ask, well, what is his mission? Well, we know what his mission is. John 10.10 makes abundantly clear what Satan's mission is. And that is to steal, to kill, and destroy. 
That is what Satan's mission is. He wants to steal from us. He wants to kill us. And he wants to destroy us. Not only does he want to destroy us in this room, but he wants to get us to destroy other people outside of the doors of this church. Satan loves it when we war against each other. He loves religious wars. He loves racial wars. He loves civil wars. He loves war. War. Satan loves it when we are a divided people. We see right now in our land that we are a divided people. We see it when we see the events that have taken place in, in Charlottesville, things that have taken place a couple years ago in places like Ferguson. We see it this week when we turn the news on and we see all of the people that were mowed down over um, in Spain. We see it every single day that we turn the TV on that we are a divided people, not only as a country, but as a world. We need unity, we need civility, and this world needs Jesus. And as the church, we need to be the lights of Christ. We need to be, Jesus said, and and back in Matthew chapter 5, that we are the salt of the earth. We are the light of the world. We are the ones that are to take the light of Christ into the dark crevices of this world and point people to Jesus Christ. I believe that it is during times when the world is at its darkest, that the church can be its brightest. You and I, we can be bright lights in this dark world. And that is exactly what Christ commissioned us to be. Not only when he spoke these words, as he spoke um, the Beatitudes during his message on the mount, but also whenever he commissioned us to go into all the world and preach the gospel, we are to be the lights of Christ. Jesus also points out that the Pharisees' accusations are just not consistent. So not only are they not logical, but they're also not consistent. In Matthew 12, 27, we read, And if I cast out demons by Beelzebul, by whom do your sons cast them out? Therefore, they will be your judges. Jesus wants to know that if casting out demons was indeed a demonic activity, then why didn't the Pharisees condemn their own people when they did the very same thing when they cast out demons? Paul, um, our, our Luke writes of an instance that took place in Acts chapter 19, in verses 13 through 17, we read this. Then some of the itinerant Jewish exorcists undertook to invoke the name of the Lord Jesus over those who had evil spirits, saying, I adjure you by the Jesus whom Paul proclaims. Seven sons of a Jewish high priest named Sceva were doing this. But the evil spirit answered them, Jesus I know, and Paul I recognize, but who are you? And the man in whom was the evil spirit leaped on them, mastered all of them, and overpowered them, so that they fled out of the house naked and wounded. And this became known to all the residents of Ephesus, both Jews and Greeks, and fear fell upon them all. And the name of the Lord Jesus was extolled. So even the Pharisees 
were casting out demons. And, and we see here after Jesus' death and resurrection, they actually try to cast out demons invoking the name of the Lord as well. One commentator wrote, Jesus pointed out the Pharisees' extreme prejudice by showing that they approved the exorcisms attempted by the sons who were part of their religious establishment. They would never have claimed that those activities were ungodly, much less satanic. Yet when Jesus not only cast out every sort of demon, but also healed every sort of disease, they accused him of being in league with the devil. The Pharisees had so hardened their hearts to anything that Jesus did, that they, that they just constantly accused him. You know, sometimes in life, we encounter people that have hard hearts. Man, it doesn't matter what you say to those that have hard hearts. It doesn't matter what passage of scripture you share with them. Man, they're just totally 100% against Jesus. For these Pharisees, it still just blows my mind. They saw Jesus supernaturally do healing, miracle after miracle. I mean, the lame walked. The blind could see. The deaf could hear. The dead was raised. They were raised. And they still doubted. They still allowed their hearts to be so hardened to Jesus' supernatural activity that they accused Jesus of being the devil. Notice our next sub-point, Jesus' authority over salvation. We read in verse 28, But if it is by the Spirit of God that I cast out demons, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. Because of the work that he had done, he gives further evidence that the kingdom of God was here present on earth. Within the expository's commentary, there's three points that are emphasized. The first point is this. Jesus' work is not by the power of Satan, but it is by the power of God. If the kingdom of God were here and Jesus clearly made that declaration, then guess what? That means that the King of Kings, the Lord of Lords, Jesus Christ, the Messiah indeed, was here some 2,000 years ago and he walked this earth. He went to a cross and he died on that cross for our sins and three days later he rose from the dead and by him conquering life, death, and the cross, guess what? You and I also can enter into a relationship with Jesus Christ and we can make the declaration that indeed he is King Jesus, indeed he is the Lord of Lords, and indeed he is the only way to God the Father. So Jesus did not come and perform satanic works. He came in the authority and power of God. We also see Jesus make it clear that he is indeed stronger than Satan. In verse 29 we read, Or how can someone enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless his fir- he first binds the strong man, then indeed he may plunder his house. Make no mistake about it. Jesus has arrived and he has entered the house of Satan and he has bound him up. Right now Satan has a very, very short lease. Very little um, is he able to do against us. We read in James 4, 7, these words, Submit yourselves therefore to God. Resist the devil and he will flee. Yes, Satan has a short leash today. 
Yes, he still is actively patrolling this earth. Yes, he is actively still trying to steal, kill, and destroy from us and get us to do that against other people. But we have this promise in Scripture that if we resist the devil, he will flee. So you and I have the authority given to us by God to make that declaration and that statement when we say, devil, get away from me. You have no more authority over me because I have been bought by the son. The blood has cleansed me, forgiven me, and purified me, and I am no longer yours. I am God the Father's. We can make that declaration every single day. Jesus also makes it clear here that he demands a decision. He demands a decision from every one of us. In Matthew 12, 30, we read, Whoever is not with me is against me, and whoever does not gather with me scatters. The final sub-point we see here is that Jesus demands a decision from each and every one of us in this room. Every one of us must decide what we are going to do with Jesus. We are either going to believe in him or we are going to choose not to believe him and reject him. And if you choose to reject Jesus, I want you to know right now that scripture is very clear. You will spend eternity separated from him in a real place called hell. You are either for Jesus or you are against him. Our final sub-point this morning is this. Our final point this morning is this. Jesus, judge, and Savior. Jesus is judge and he is Savior. In verses 31 through 32 we read, Therefore I tell you, every sin of blasphemy will be forgiven people. But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. And whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. You know, I have had more people than I can count come up to me over the years of ministry and say, what is the one unforgivable sin? What is the one unpardonable sin? And they come to me asking me that a lot of times because they think that they have done something so bad that God cannot forgive them. I want you to know right now that the unpardonable sin is not murder. The unpardonable sin is not adultery. Both terrible. It's not divorce. Horrible. It's not lying, stealing, or cheating. There is but one unpardonable sin, and that is rejecting Jesus Christ. That is the only sin that is unforgivable. We see here Jesus, I mean, we see blasphemy against Jesus. Jesus says that's forgivable. In verses 31 and 32, the first part of both of those verses, Jesus says, Therefore I tell you, every sin and blasphemy will be forgiven, and whoever speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven. You and I serve a forgiving God, don't we? We read in Exodus 34, verses 6, and the first part of verse 7 says, The Lord passed before him and proclaimed, The Lord, the Lord, a God merciful 
and gracious, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love and faithfulness, keeping steadfast love for thousands, forgiving iniquity and transgression and sin, reaching all the way back to to history's beginning. That very first sin of rebellion in the garden that Adam and Eve committed against God the Father, they were forgiven of that sin. The sins that Abraham committed, forgiven. The sins that Isaac and Jacob committed, forgiven. The sins that Moses committed, forgiven. Every time the nation of Israel repented of their sins, they were forgiven. David, forgiven. Peter, Denied Jesus three times. And Jesus restores him three times. Giving evidence, Peter forgiven. Thomas doubted the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Jesus forgave him. Paul, the chief persecutor against Christians. Blessed the murder of Christians by his very presence at stonings like the stoning of Stephen. Forgiven. Paul declared in 1 Timothy 12 through 14, he says, I thank him who has given me strength, Christ Jesus our Lord, because he judged me faithful, appointing me to his service, though formerly I was a blasphemer, persecutor, an insolent opponent, but I received mercy because I had acted ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord overflowed for me with the faith and love that are in Christ Jesus. Paul went from being the chief persecutor to being the chief proclaimer of the good news of salvation. Every single day you and I sin. Every single day you and I fall short of what it is that God would have us to do on a daily basis. Every single day by us choosing not to proclaim Jesus when we know he has called us to proclaim him, we sin against his name. But I want you to know right now that all sins against Jesus are forgivable by his grace. All of us have been saved, not by works. We have been saved by grace through faith. So you wonder, how is being a blasphemer against Jesus a forgivable sin? It's because of grace. Notice, though, there is one unforgivable sin, and that is the blasphemy against the Spirit. That is unforgivable. In the second part of 31 and 32, we read, But the blasphemy against the Spirit will not be forgiven. But whoever speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. The expository commentary, we read this, In the end, no one can be saved if they pridefully and permanently reject the Spirit of God. 
This is the Spirit who draws us to salvation, who alone leads us to repentance and applies God's forgiveness. We dare not reject his testimony to the Son, even as we consider the danger of blaspheming the Son and the Spirit. We must be careful not to completely disconnect the two from one another, for ultimately to reject the Spirit is to finally reject the Son. As we read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, no one speaking by the Spirit of God says, Jesus is cursed. And no one can say, Jesus is Lord, except by the Holy Spirit. To reject Jesus, to reject the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, that is the unpardonable sin. Because if you die having rejected Jesus as being the only way to God the Father, then you have sealed your fate. And that is an eternity separated from God in hell. That is the unforgivable sin to reject Jesus and to reject the regenerative work of the Holy Spirit in our lives. I began by asking you this question this morning. Are you for or against Jesus? Have you come to the point in your life where you have placed your faith and trust in Jesus Christ? If you have done that, then eternity is your reward, is what God's word makes clear to us over and over. But if you have not done that, then God's word is also clear. You will spend eternity separated from him in a real, literal place called hell. You know, this morning, as we enter into a time of invitation, our praise team is going to come in just a moment. If you are here this morning and you do not have a relationship with Jesus Christ, If you do not know for certain if you were to die today, whether or not you would spend eternity with Jesus or not, then this morning I invite you to come. Come down here and talk to me. Grab someone that you trust in this room and say, I don't know Jesus, or I'm not for sure if I indeed am a Christian or not. Man, we want to share with you this morning how you can know for sure. So if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus, you're questioning whether or not you're a follower of Jesus, and I invite you to come. You may be here this morning. You've been visiting this church for a while, and the Lord is leading you to become a member here. We invite you to come. I don't know what decision you need to make, but we're going to stand together. I'm going to lead us in a time of prayer, and then we invite you to come. Let's pray together. Father God, we come before you this morning. Just thanking you for the opportunity to worship you. Thanking you for the opportunity to open up your word. Father, we know, Lord Jesus, that there is a battle. Father, there is a battle that is, 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 is raging outside of the doors of this church. 
Father, there is war that is happening in our streets, war that is happening around this world. And Father, we know that this world is in desperate need of you. And so, Father, we want to be your ambassadors. Father, we want to be obedient to the Great Commission. We want to take the light of Christ into these dark places. And Father, we want to see this lost and broken world reconciled to you. And so, Father, we ask for opportunities to do that very thing. And so, Father, if there are some in this room that do not know you as their Lord and Savior, I pray that this morning they'll make the greatest decision that they could ever make. And that is to repent of their sins and to cry out to you to be their Lord and their Savior. Father, if there's some here this morning that you're leading to become a part of this faith family, Lord, we invite them to come. Father, I don't know what decision needs to be made this morning, but you know. And so, Father, we ask that you just move during this time of invitation. For it's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.